sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And as they were going away, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, um, John is in prison. He's heard of the works of Christ. It's kind of a theme we've seen through this. We've seen stress on the teaching and the deeds of Christ. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And so he's heard of these works of Christ, and so he sends his some disciples to ask what question to Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Now, does it strike you as strange John would be questioning that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Why does that strike you as strange? He's been the one going out and proclaiming. Absolutely. He was the one uh, preparing the way, announcing his coming. He was the one who baptized him, who pointed him out as the Lamb of God, and the disciples followed him. So why would he ask this question? And that's uh, puzzled everybody a little bit. Um, what do you think? He is in prison. So... I don't know if that factors into this or not. I think it does, but even at that, that might factor in in a couple of different ways. Uh, I don't have a definite answer. I know two or three good possibilities. What do you think? So if he's in prison, how does that factor in his sending these messengers to ask that question? He didn't see the miracle that Jesus done on his, on his own eyes. That's exactly right because Jesus tells the messengers, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. So he hasn't seen those. Uh, so. C.S. Lewis said that it's something about how it's entirely possible to um, let go of something that your reason has once accepted. Like, just because you believe that something is true doesn't mean that you feel convicted of its truth all the time and at least for me like in a circumstance like that where like I'm in prison and you know he did these things but now he's in prison and he's not seeing what's going on like I, it just totally makes sense to me that he would start doubting the truth that he used to know. Consider a couple angles on that. Yeah. Could it be that his confidence in Jesus being the Messiah is shaken because he's in prison and because he's not been released from prison and because nothing's really happening to change the situation. I mean, is maybe Jesus not doing what John expected him to do? And could that be kind of, you know, bothering him and making him have some doubts about that? I'll give you another possibility. Could it be more simple than that? Could it be that John, who is not out, he's in prison, all he knows is some little snatches of reports he's heard, could it be that he's not even sure this is the same guy? <laughs> he's not there to witness it. Is this the one or not? 
Um, those are two options, obviously quite a bit different in how it ends up. Um, but I'll let you I'll let you think about those. I think those are the two best options I know. Some have suggested maybe John already knew and he just sent the messenger so they'd be convinced. But that doesn't strike me as very likely. It seems a little deceptive. So I prefer one of those first two. Um, I love Jesus' way of answering this. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. I like that in part because what was Jesus supposed to do? Tell him, yeah, go back and tell him I'm the one. Yeah. Why did he even ask Jesus? Because whoever he asked would probably say, well, yeah, I am. If, if you say, well, yeah, I'm the one, that wouldn't necessarily solve the doubts. Yeah. You know, because anybody could say I'm the one. What's Jesus doing? Giving evidence. Yes, exactly. You know, rather than saying if I am or I'm not, he said, well, just tell John the things you're witnessing, the things you're seeing, the things you're hearing, and John will then be able, on the basis of the evidence, to draw the proper conclusion. Sometimes evidence is so much better. You know, what if you want to say, you know, well, like this. I hear people say a lot, you know, I really want to be, set a good example for people. What's the best way to set a good example? Tell everybody how good you are and how faithful you are and how strong you are. What's the best way to set a good example? Be good. Be good. Yeah. Do the right things. And that way that's what people see because you're doing it. You know, just telling everybody, man, I'm good. <laughs> that really doesn't quite get it. And, and so I really like Jesus' approach on this. No, notice how close this is to what we've already been looking at. When he says in verse 4, go and report to John what you hear and see. He then mentions the things they've seen. Blind receive sight, lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, dead raised up. And then the things they hear... The poor have the gospel preached to them. But isn't that right in line with what we looked at earlier in Matthew? Matthew 4.23, Jesus was going teaching, proclaiming, and healing. That's John 4.23. And then you had the same thing in 9.35. Jesus was teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And we noticed that in 5-7 to seven you had him uh, teaching. 8-9 and nine you have him healing. So you've got the emphasis on the things you see him do, his actions, and the things you hear him teach. And those both combine to fit the prophet's picture of the Messiah. The things he points out here are very similar to various passages in Isaiah that had in prophecy what the Messiah would be like and the kinds of things he would do. And lo and behold, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. So they're going to be able to match it up, or John will be, because, you know, he's got the evidence of the works that the, the scriptures had said the Messiah would do. Comments and thoughts to this point. I agree with what you said about the evidence being like better than just a yes or no answer. Although I have to say that personally I would rather have the yes or no instead of having to go through the process of looking at the evidence, coming to a conclusion, and then sticking with that conclusion. Um, so, I don't know, it's, it's harder, but better, I think. Why is it better? So we need to make our own conclusions. It is stronger when you draw your own conclusion. When you weigh the evidence out and you draw your conclusion, what if, what if you ask somebody a Bible question, they give you the answer? You know, you say, oh, I don't know, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And they say, yeah. <laughs> Okay, now you know the answer. <laughs> is that really as good as somebody who says, well, here's some passages for you to study and for you to see what they're saying. You'll have a lot more... <coughs> sneezes. You'll have a lot more conviction if you have seen the evidence and drawn your own conclusion. If you just hear somebody tell you, oh yeah, it's this way, well, what's the problem with that? Yeah. 
That may not be true. It may not be, and somebody else will probably come along and tell you something else. And so what if you just follow the last guy who told you what it was? You know, that's not good. So I really do think this is better, but it is more challenging. Notice the challenge in verse 6. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. You know, Jesus does not always fit our expectations. If our first idea of why John was questioning this is right, then this might fit in with that. You know, maybe Jesus isn't exactly what John's preconceived notion of the Messiah was like. But blessed is the one who is willing to accept Jesus based on the evidence, even if he's not exactly what they were thinking he'd be like. And, uh, you know, is it really more, you know, wiser to be, you know, doubtful? To be, to be, to be uncertain. You know, some people who, who never want to have a c conviction about anything, they're sort of above that. They're so intellectual that they really doubt everything. No, that's not better. You know, now, to have doubts until we examine the evidence and come to our conclusion, yes. We're not supposed to be gullible. But we are supposed to be able to weigh the evidence and come to a solid conviction about things. And uh, hopefully, that's what John did in this case. All right, anything you want to say through verse 6? Well, this is kind of interesting, starting in verse 7, because it's as the men were leaving, the men that came from John, that Jesus talked to the crowds about John. <laughs> in normal society, people receive praise when they're present and criticism when they're not. In this case, Jesus does almost the opposite. When the messengers are there from John who could have told him what Jesus said about him, he didn't talk about how good John was. When they leave, then he praises John. Almost seems like a funeral oration or something here. But he starts with what John was not. And they're two of the most deadly weaknesses of preachers. And John was not either one of them. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Do you understand what a reed is? Just a grass? Yeah, it's like a, like a kind of a stalky grass. And so if you had a wind, what would happen to that reed? It just blow. It doesn't have any, you know, strength. So what would he mean by, was John a reed shaken by the wind? heard somebody describe it as being a yes man. Somebody who just goes along for the sake of going along. Why do people usually do that? They want the, they want the uh, acceptance of the other. Exactly. John was not the kind of guy who was trying to get men's approval by just going along with whatever way the wind was blowing, you know, just accepting anything people wanted. He didn't adapt his message to public opinion. You know how the politicians sometimes are. You know, with some politicians, you feel like they take an opinion poll before they ever have a conclusion about anything. You know, which position will be most popular? That's what they'll take. Well, John certainly wasn't like that. You know, Mr. Pliable does not end up in prison and isn't usually martyred for his stand for the truth. You know, John, so he says this almost as a, almost ironically. Well, did you go out to see a, a, a reed shaken by the wind? No, I don't think he was that, you know. Might have been a lot of other things, but he was a straightforward, plain-spoken, no-nonsense kind of a guy. Well, did you, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Now, what would that represent? Yeah, a guy interested in kingly stuff or riches, luxury, and things like that. Now, John did end up uh, in the king's palace, but he was an unwilling guest <laughs> in prison. He was not a man who was interested in riches. He was not trying to... And remember what he wore? Camel's hair, which doesn't strike me as being the softest of fabrics. And remember what he ate? Locust and honey. Yeah. It looked like he was a very simple guy who just lived off the wilderness, whatever he had there. You know, so John, 
was not a fickle, unstable guy, and he was not luxury-loving and undisciplined. He, he was really a good man. And Jesus asked those questions just to provoke the reaction, no, he sure wasn't that. And no, he sure wasn't that. Well, what was he then? Was he a prophet? Yes, and? More than a prophet. In what way was he more than a prophet? Yeah, I think that's one way. He was not only a prophet, but he was prophesied about. <laughs> he was the object of prophecy because God had said that he would send his messenger to prepare the way for his coming, and that was John the Baptist. Um, and he says nobody born of women is greater than John. You know, he was the greatest of anybody up to that time. You would think that he's preparing the way for Jesus. That's the greatest role anybody could have. So Jesus has very high respect for him. But then he turns around and says something kind of disconcerting in the end of 11, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what does that mean? He's the greatest so far, and then he says whoever's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. I think it's trying to indicate how hard it is to get into heaven. And... I don't know. I, 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 to me, is uh, understand is like it is. You know, <clears throat> you will have to be like there is not not everybody. There, you know, it's a very few people. You know, in in heaven, and then for for that, in you know, whoever get to heaven is probably have more glory than when he John. says the kingdom of heaven here. Matthew uses a lot that expression, kingdom of heaven. He doesn't really mean heaven itself. He means the rule or the kingdom that comes from heaven. And Jesus and John would say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning that it was almost time for Jesus to begin his rule and reign. And those who submit to Jesus come into his kingdom. And so what he's saying here is, John's role was to announce the coming of this kingdom. He was kind of like the herald, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming. But greater to be in the kingdom than just to announce that it was coming. So John was the greatest so far because he announced it was coming. But to be in Jesus' kingdom now, that is to be converted and to be a part of Jesus' family, that's really a greater privilege than John had in announcing that it was coming. Does that make some sense? Yes. Yeah. That, that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is just confusing for us okay. because we think heaven, but it's used a lot in Matthew. The other gospels usually use kingdom of God, but Matthew usually uses the idea of heaven in the sense of God's in heaven and so he's his ruling. Thoughts and comments to that point? And then he says, in 12, a kind of a interesting past, kind of difficult to understand. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent <coughs> men take it by force. Um, perhaps he's saying there's violent opposition to the kingdom. You know, um, and there's, there's violent attacks on it. Um, you know, don't expect this to come in quietly and calmly. You know, there's a lot of, you know, opposition when Jesus breaks into the world and becomes its king. I think that's the idea. John's experience some, experiencing some of that in prison. Uh, and so, you know, this is not going to be an easy process. That, that's a variously understood text. Do you have a comment or question through verse 12? Look at 13. This goes back to what we were looking at in 11. All the prophets of the law prophesied until John. John was the transition figure. John marks the turning point in history. Before John, it's the law and the prophets. After John, it's Jesus' kingdom. John was right there on that division. 
You know, when Jesus comes into the world, it is the greatest thing that ever happened. It is the most significant event in the whole history of the world. God comes into the world as a man. That is the beginning of a new era and at the end of an era. So that's, that's a real key event. And then he says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, in the Old Testament, the last two verses of the Old Testament in our arrangement, probably the last two verses written in the Old Testament, Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6, Malachi predicted that Elijah was going to come and prepare the way for Jesus. Now, Elijah in the Old Testament was who? A prophet. He was a great prophet. And he was a prophet during the era of what king? Ahab. Ahab, who was a really what kind of king? Bad. Really bad. And Elijah was a no-nonsense preacher who spoke out boldly against the king and really started the era of the prophets. Well, John was another Elijah. He was a man coming out to speak out boldly against King Herod and to announce the coming of a whole new era. And so when in the end of the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, Malachi said, Elijah's coming. It was talking about another Elijah, John, and Jesus said, he's the guy. This is the Elijah that, you know, the Old Testament ended with predicting that he was coming to prepare my way. So does Jesus respect John? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, very much so. But Jesus says a lot of challenging things. You know, trying to understand all that and follow him you know, makes us ha stop, have to stop to think. Some of that may, I may have gone through too quickly, and you may have comments. So, comments, thoughts? He says, if you're willing to accept it, like, as in some people wouldn't accept the fact that John was Yeah, some people aren't going to understand this. You know, some people, it's going to go right over their head because they're not spiritual, they're not interested, you know, Jesus often says this when there's something he says that you really have to listen to. You know, where, you know, it's this is a hard thing. You've got you've to gotta really, you've got to pay attention and get this to accept it. Kind of like saying he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some of them don't have ears and minds ready for this. Other questions or comments? Well, the next section is really interesting and also challenging. I think it kind of follows along. I think it, it's the next thing he says, 16 to 19. <clears throat> but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So he compares this generation to what? Children in the marketplace. And what are the children doing? Just say stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, what were these children doing? Like they're playing. They were playing, but what are they saying? What are they doing and what they're saying here? Trying to get the other ones involved? I, they're complaining. What are they complaining about? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> the other children never played the game they want to play. You know, they're, they're like these children who say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. You know, we sang a funeral song and you didn't mourn. These children, you know, are whiny. They only want to play if they make the rules. When the other children don't play the game they wanted to play, they don't like it. You know any children like that? 
You know, they only want to they only want to interact if everybody will do what they want to do when they want to do it. That really sounds like children sometimes, doesn't it? Especially spoiled ones. <laughs> you know, and uh, he says that's what this generation is like. They are never satisfied. They're a bunch of spoiled brats who are always complaining about what? Complained about John, whatever they whatever he did, they complained about it, and they complained about Jesus. Yeah. He, they did the opposite, but they complained both ways. Yes. They're never satisfied with God and the messengers God sends them. They just wanted God's messengers to, you know, fit what they wanted when they wanted it. So John comes along, and John was, uh, you know, he was out there in the wilderness. I mean, he's a guy of about the simplest possible life. Well, he didn't like him. You know, he's got a demon. You know, this guy's possessed. You know, living like that. You know, they, they just they didn't reject. They rejected that. Jesus came along, and Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus would go to dinners in people's houses and to banquets, and he would associate with people at all levels, including the tax collectors and sinners and, and that sort of thing. Well, they didn't like that either. Ah, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, that didn't satisfy him. You know, they, they rejected John because he was you know, too self-denying. They rejected Jesus because he wasn't. John was too holy, Jesus wasn't holy enough for him. <laughs> the truth is, you can't please these guys. Whatever God does is not what they wanted. You know, uh, so they hate John preaching repentance, they hate Jesus bringing the gospel. Anything God does, they don't want it. You ever know anybody like that? Well, I just don't like the way the Bible says that. I, I just don't think God ought to do that. See a problem with that? <laughs> like, I kind of need him. He doesn't need me. If I don't like the way he does things, uh, tough. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, it's like, can I get this story in my mind? Like the guy who uh, who, who said he was, you know, he he he's not working at his job any longer, and and they ask him why. It's, he said, "Well, because you know he didn't like the uh, last the last things his boss said to him. What was that? <laughs> You're fired." <laughs> you know, it's kind of like um, you know, if if you're working for a boss and you don't like the way he's doing things, and he's got control over your employment. <coughs> Well, you better learn to like it if you want to stay, keep your job. You know, maybe you want to find a different one, but if you need that one, you better go along because he's the boss. You know, with God, who are we to be children whining, God, you're not doing this the way I thought you should? It's not up to us. Jesus did not cater to their moods and to their desires. You know... He didn't fit with their preconceived ideas about what he ought to be like. He didn't really care. Jesus had the gospel. You know, we get so worried about, well, I'm afraid they probably won't like this. What am I going to do to make them like it? It's not our job to make anybody like the gospel. It's our job to proclaim it. Whether they like it or not is going to depend on them. Why have we gotten into this mode where we think everybody has to like it? Well, if they don't like it, what did I do wrong? What did I say wrong? Well, they didn't like Jesus. He didn't say anything wrong. It was a test of, of them. He says, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You know, ultimately what Jesus did and what John did vindicated them. <laughs> they did the right thing, no matter what the opinion was, of these Jewish children in the marketplaces who were criticizing them. I think this is a, a wonderful section, but it is. These little mini parables of Jesus are challenging. you got to think about it a while. Thoughts and comments? I don't know if that's even what you've thought about at this in the past. But. 
But I think that's the best way to look at it. Well, it's like they always can find an excuse not to believe it. Like, you know, people say, well, I didn't see any miracles now. But, you know, they wouldn't have believed it if they had seen them then. You know, so it's always finding some reason to reject it. Yeah, exactly. There's always something. Well, if he'd have done it this way, then I'd believe it. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter. He did it the way he did it. You know, if, if I don't believe it, bad for me. You know, it's, it's just so crazy when we try to evaluate God and we're like, oh, no, that wasn't, uh, that, that, that's, that's never going to work for me. <laughs> well, you know, that doesn't really hurt the Lord, it just hurts you. That's what sometimes, like, I used to think that, you know, okay, oh, poor Israeli, they're, they're like, you know, even if they see the, the, the water stood up right next to them, they, they still... I won't believe it. You know, they choose not to believe it, and the the, the food fall out of sky. And I was like, somehow I think, you know, if I see a food fall out of sky, me come out of sky, then I will believe it. You know? But then I'm thinking, well, I don't need the the meat falling out of sky. I get, I got you know moons and stars and you know everything that's around me. It's just just like I don't make none of these guys. And then my neighbor didn't make them. You know, and, you know the guy before them didn't make them. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> Yeah, so it's, it's enough. It's enough that you know the uh, God is the gospel, and everything is just enough for us to 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 to, to tell us that God He's there, and then we just choose not to think about them. We we want to be ignorant. I want to be ignorant. So the the better that I don't hear about this stuff, there's the better better off for me because I can go do my own thing. You know, that, I think that's what it is. Like, and I really like the fact that you said that sometimes you don't have to be you know worry about whether they like it or not. Is the truth is the truth. It's never going to change. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. Other thoughts? Well, this goes right into the next section, 20 to 24. Then <coughs> he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. <coughs> and you, Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven? Uh, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Just interesting what we were saying. Jesus denounces the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they didn't repent. They had this wonderful opportunity. They got to witness the miracles and the more opportunity we have, the more responsibility we have. If you get a greater privilege, Jesus expects more out of you. Jesus was there. He did these wonderful miracles and they did not They did not repent. repent. It's interesting he doesn't say they did not believe. It's deeper than that. It's not merely they didn't believe. They didn't change. You know, repentance is the real key. You know, until you're willing to change your life, it doesn't count. They didn't change. Even though they had this wonderful opportunity, he says it's better for Tyre and Sidon than for the cities that saw all of his miracles because Tyre and Sidon never had such a great opportunity as these cities had. You know, he said, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Capernaum was arrogant. <laughs> he said, you're going to be cast down to Hades. You know, because if the miracles that I've done in you had occurred in Sodom, Sodom repented. <laughs> you know, Sodom is, you know... Uh, the most mentioned account of God's judgment in the Bible. He said even Sodom would have repented with the privileges you guys, guys have had. That was a cutting remark. Very much so. I was like saying, man, I mean, Hitler would have been good if he'd have seen these things. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it would be like in our day. You know. <laughs> so, um, it's interesting. We don't know 
about miracles Jesus did, like in Chorazin and Bethsaida and all. There's tons of miracles Jesus did we don't have any record of. You've just got a smatter. And it's also interesting, you know what? There's some cities in the Bible that still exist. Not Chorazin, not Bethsaida, not Capernaum. Those cities are mere archaeological digs. <laughs> they don't live. So really doesn't this show that even working a bunch of miracles doesn't convince people who don't want to be convinced. The problem is not a lack of evidence. There's enough evidence to convince you if you're willing. If you're not, well, probably wouldn't matter if you had twice as much. Other comments or thoughts through 24? So what happened to Tyre and Sidon? Well, you know about Sodom's destruction, but Tyre and Sidon were condemned throughout the prophets and well Nebuchadnezzar fought against them. Tyre was the more outstanding of the two and Nebuchadnezzar drove them off to an island off of Tyre and then Alexander the Great took all the stuff from mainland Tyre, the rubble, put it into the sea and made a causeway and went over and wiped out the island city as well. So they were, they were pretty thoroughly uh, destroyed. Other questions or comments? 25 to 30. <clears throat> At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, Jesus praises God, the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You know, God is amazing. And because what God, but, but, but because of what God has done, what did He do in verse twenty-five? Did the things from the wise and made them available, revealed them to infants. That is really kind of not what we would think, is it? I would have assumed that the smarter you were, the more you'd know and understand and believe the things God had. But Jesus says, you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So is that really true? Do the wise and intelligent stand a lesser chance of understanding these things than the babies do? I don't think he means babies literally, but usually, but we're talking about worldly wisdom. Yeah, worldly wisdom, you know, obviously the intellectuals understand. But because of worldly wisdom, they tend not to understand the things of God. What is it about being wise and intelligent that would be a hindrance to knowing the things of God? You think you're too smart. Yes, the pride of thinking you know everything. The self-sufficiency of that. I think that. it's not enough time because, uh, like, whatever the you know, like, if you're gonna study something, there's not enough time to you know, we uh, average person live 60 to 80, and you know, the I don't think they would ever have somebody can ever have put enough time to understand everything on earth, you know, to to, to know for a person to to to, you know, what God want to say because they're like, oh, let me go figure out this one first, then I'll go back, I'll study this. But the thing is, you know... It, so it can be a distraction. It could be a distraction as well. Yeah, it can. That's a good point. I mean, people put all this effort into learning, you know, about worldly subjects and they don't they neglect the things of God. But a lot of times, people who are really smart, they think they're smart. And to, to, to humble themselves to learn from God is not something they want to do. Well, we know all this. We don't need to listen to God. You know, they may not say it that way, 
but that's more or less the impression and that's what what they do whereas humble people the babes so to speak the the untrained you know people they're more they're more willing to listen they're more willing to learn they're not all they don't have a big head thinking they know everything already and so those are the people that would follow Jesus most they appreciate what Jesus is doing the wise and intelligent they don't care about the Lord he doesn't appeal to worldly wisdom Jesus had no college degrees you know he was not you know well recognized as a world philosopher you know, he, he didn't run around with Socrates and Plato or the Socrateses and Platos of his day. You know, he was a simple man. I mean, God didn't send Jesus into the world as some, you know, elite kind of a guy. He was a carpenter, the son of a carpenter. Grew up in Nazareth, of all places. You know, nobody that had intellectual credentials. Because that's not what matters. What matters is the the, the sim, simple trust and dependence on God. So Jesus saw this as God's hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This wasn't just an accident. God intentionally did it this way to where it would be the humble people who would turn to him, not the proud people. So uh, can you tell them the, those uh, white people uh, that smart people they uh, worship themselves because basically you know they don't listen to what God said and they just going what the, they think is right you know but coming up from their mind absolutely they, just, yeah. they almost become their own God uh -huh. yeah that's exactly right yeah it's often you often hear evolution people that believe you know the theory of evolution becomes a religion you have to have to have a lot of faith to believe it because it's contrary to God but it, that we still have that problem today obviously and I think that's one of the areas is in science you have to believe God you have to admit that you can't find the answer yes that there is no answer mathematically yes. scientifically uh, chemistry biology astronomy all that. <laughs> we don't like to humble ourselves and say we can't figure it out on our own and we have to listen to God to tell us. We want to think that we're smart enough that we've got it figured out ourselves. So it's very humbling to have to say, I, all I know is what God says. I haven't got any of this figured out for myself. And even in the time of the, especially the Pharisees, when Jesus did miracles, they tried to answer that with their, I guess you'd call it their scientific methods of those days. You know, oh, he did that by this, or that, you know, explaining it away, just like people are doing today when they look at the evidence that God created this universe. Well, he must have done it this way, or he, you know, this must have happened, or something else. It really takes humility. We've got to be dependent and willing to listen and follow what the Lord says. Yeah, and then, and then even like some of the smart people, if they think they're smart, even if they say about Bible or preach about Bible, I think, uh, I mean, they just don't use what the Bible said. They also add up what they know from their knowledge, and it's all, you know, mixed up, and I don't think they're going to the right way either at that point. Mm -hmm. Good yeah. point. I agree. And I think it's for, it is very important from, you know, to me, if I look at my life, then it's like the reason why I can come back and accept the, you know, accept the, you know, uh, God is because I was broken, uh, you know, because well, a lot of my friends, you know, like they're like, oh yeah, I, I'm not messed up like Nin, you know, I, I don't drink that much, you know, I don't do that much, you know, why do I need God, you know, I'm perfectly fine, you know, I got a job, I got everything, I got a car, and it's also said in the program that every time when you are like, you have to admit your defeat first, you have to admit that I'm completely defeated, I can I can't do this in. A lot of people still like. Well, so there are some people that who know that the that I know that who drink a lot, way lot more than I do, who have way much more problems. But they will never admit that. They will never admit that I got problem. They they will try to go hide somewhere rather go do something else than admitting. And that I think this you know this is for our human to to find God is that you have to we have to admit that the same way with the you know that same way with the help getting help is you have to admit the, your defeat. You have to admit your blindness. You have to. I think that you, uh, we have to come and admit that our 
like that we can see that we can that we can do this on our own exactly and that's humbling yeah. and that's hard for us but that's exactly right that is the first step you know the first beatitude blessed are the poor in spirit it takes us to recognize how inadequate we are and how much we need the Lord or we never get anywhere and there's no difference in any of us I mean whether whether we whether we've ever had a problem with alcohol or anything else we're all just as broken I mean just as as bad as anyone else there's no difference in any of us the difference is whether or not we recognize we it we just or not. have to admit it yes. yeah no matter where I am I'm still you know worthless and and unable to do it myself and we all have you know just that some things are maybe more evident to other people but we all have those things yeah well doesn't make any difference whether you're on Mount Everest or in Death Valley you're still impossibly far from the moon you know we look around and we say oh I think I'm a little better than they are well maybe maybe not but what if you were it's nothing look at where the Lord is look at where you ought to have been but the opposite of that is true too we look around and say well I'm not as good as them so I can't but yes. the fact is there is no difference <laughs> yes that's exactly right they say the ground is level at the foot of the cross <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean we're all totally dependent on the Lord and we can only be right by him and anyone can be right by him if they'll humble themselves and turn to him Maybe sometimes we don't see uh, faults in other people too because we don't want to admit our own. You know, it's like, oh, well, they must have it all together, and so I'm trying to be that way. Well, <laughs> we just try to hide them or ignore them, right? Kind of, kind of brazen it out, and you know, maybe we, maybe nobody will find out. <laughs> they usually have figured it out. We, we're the ones that look stupid. But a lot of times, like, when you finally do tell someone, like, man, I did, like, this really bad thing, or whatever, half the time they're like, I've done that too! And you're like, <laughs> what? You you think that they're perfect, because they're putting, maybe putting on some face, and then you're doing the same thing, but you're really, maybe you've done the exact same thing. <laughs> so the only way to the Father, verse 27, is through Jesus. He's the only one who's qualified to reveal God. And you can't get to God any other way. You can't discover God by your own thinking. Jesus is the exclusive key. All things have been all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you don't come through the Son, and his revelation of God, you will never know God. Again, that's humbling. That's like, I can't figure out anything on my own. It's just what Jesus tells me. It's the only way. Comments or thoughts? This also makes me really thankful for like, the times when you recognize your brokenness more. Like, sometimes, like what we were talking about a second ago, like when you really get to the point that you really feel broken, then that's really, helpful so like even though that it's like the valley of acor is a door of hope that's right <laughs> very good so yeah i don't know that's how that it's a blessing to me it is yes it's it's ironic you know it seems like the opposite of what it ought to be and it's good. easier for like when you've had those times than for people who have never really realized that yeah so. absolutely now, when, when the Lord really brings us to see how empty we are, it is much better. When we're still trying to deceive ourselves into thinking we don't need anything, that's where we're in big trouble. <clears throat> and then Jesus says in 28, you know, come unto me and I'll give you rest. He's, he's offering. He, the weary and heavy laden ones, he's willing to give us the Sabbath. He's willing to give us the rest from the emptiness and the troubled conscience and the anxiety, you know, and we just need to take his yoke and submit to him, learn from him, 
and 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 receive him He's, he offers us everything it's free we just have to admit we need it you know we have to be willing to to live for him submit to him humble himself um, you know he says for I am I'm gentle and humble in heart Jesus is humble but he's only humble if he's God you know who besides God could invite the whole world to find rest in him but Jesus could and he did and uh, he says, you know, it's much better. You know, you come to me and you've got true peace. You try to find it any other way, and it's empty and it won't work. I have a question for you. So uh, when, it, when Jesus was on the earth, he do a lot of medical things. He healed uh, people. And uh, So do you think it's the same as uh, in today in our world? I mean, we desire something, uh, and we pray, and that miracle thing happened to us, like say, for example, uh, my back was hard, and I prayed, and, and when I woke up in the next morning, it's totally fine. So do you think it's the same as the miracle what Jesus done when he was in art? Well, it wouldn't be the same, okay. because when Jesus healed people, he just said the word, and they were healed like that. Okay. It wasn't a matter of the person praying, and they woke up the next morning better. Mm -hmm. When Jesus actually worked miracles, or the apostles worked miracles, mm -hmm. they just instantaneously said the word or touched the people and they were totally healed. Okay. So I think those kinds of things only happened in the time period that the New Testament was being revealed. Mm -hmm. And they had the purpose of giving the credentials of Jesus and the apostles that proved that they were really from God. Today we do pray. We pray that God's will be done, and if it's God's will, He does whatever we ask. Those prayers to be God's will shouldn't be self-focused. And it doesn't mean God's always going to agree with what I think is best. Paul, even the Apostle Paul prayed three times that the thorn in the flesh be removed from him, and God said, no, it's better for you to be humbled by it. And so Paul learned the lesson to rejoice in his afflictions and and difficulties. If we really understand the importance of humility, sometimes when things are rougher for us, we are being blessed more than when things go well for us. So we have to always remember that God may decide better than what we ask and not give us what we want. Uh, but, but God does respond to the prayers of faithful Christians. I don't know, did that answer your question? Yeah, that, that answered. Okay. Yeah, thank you. <coughs> Other questions or comments? Cameron. Is this section a prayer to God, or is it like a sermon to others? Because in the verse 25, he's talking to God, it seems like. And then he starts saying, come to me, and he's talking to man. So what is 25 and 26 are a prayer, and starting in 27, it's talking to men. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think so. Good, good observation. I had the same thought, and I was like, oh, he's switched. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah. Anything else? Good things to go back and meditate on. So hopefully you can go back through and restudy and rethink through this chapter. Uh, but good to study, and uh, we'll stop here and uh, <coughs> Lord willing, pick up next Thursday.